Good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Well, like Andy has said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who might be visiting with us for the very first time. See if you new faces here this morning. And also welcome to anybody who might be vis- uh, listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here. Uh, on Sunday mornings. Well, India mentioned that our small groups kicked off uh, this past week, which is really good. And, and in case you haven't been around here for a while, small groups are what we call our pastoral care system. We connect here on Sunday mornings, but the real transformation, the real community life happens, uh, as we say, in circles, face-to-face, and not in rows, like we're in rows right now. And so uh, some of us are content with having a Sunday morning experience. This is our entryway into faith, but we've encouraged those of you who want to grow and go deep in your faith with God and deep in relationship with other people that we engage small groups because uh, that's really a place where that really happens. I want to particularly plug my group, not just because it's my group, uh, but what I'm doing this time around is the Alpha course. And some of you have heard of the Alpha course, and some of you have actually gone through the Alpha small group. But the Alpha course is a popular course. It comes out of the UK, a guy named Nikki Gumbel. Um, and basically... This uh, course is supposed to give you a, uh, a crash course in the basics of Christianity. And so uh, if you're thinking that this course or this small group sessions are just for uh, people who have not yet become believers or people who are brand new to faith, you're wrong. This course is for anybody who wants to engage and to uh, sort of have a crash course in the Christian basics. It's perfect for people who are new to faith or people who are investigating faith. But I know people who have been uh, Christians for years and years to go through Alpha and just rediscover why they uh, fall in love with Jesus. And it gives you some great language to be able to explain your faith. And so I'm plugging this because I think this is a really important class. Some of you are new to faith or some of you have, are re-engaging faith. And so if you wish to engage the Alpha course with us, uh, simply email me. My email is gino at southsuburbanvenue.org or you can go to our website and it's a real easy way to contact me if you're interested in this, but I want to welcome everybody to engage small groups in general, particularly uh, Alpha. And I also want to just say by by way of announcement that we had a wonderful uh, Easter weekend last weekend, and thank you all for inviting people and participating. Our photo booth was a big hit. The the kids uh, got a lot of candy at Easter, but the the highlights for me was uh, our Good Friday service and our Easter Sunday morning service where people uh, were, were introduced, some of them, and rem- others reminded of the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing more important in our context than those couple of things. I also think last week was really special because it was the official kickoff to our uh, pledge campaign. Some of you who are new, you don't know that we are uh, about to purchase this building. We've been renting this building for about seven years. And this summer, our plan is to purchase this building. And so we've been engaging in uh, a giving campaign, which kicked off last week. The week before last week was Pledge Sunday, where we asked people to pledge uh, their support, their financial support. And the, uh, the, the current pledge numbers, and all of our people haven't pledged yet, and so if you want to do that, you can do that at any moment. Uh, but the current pledge numbers is just under $300,000. And so I, I'm tempted to just pledge, you know, $10.60, because that number is bothering me, you know. <laughs> tip it over. But this is really good news. We got a long way to go, um, but we know that the Lord will provide and that the people will respond. Last Sunday was the official start 
to our to giving. And so people have been giving slowly here and there, but yet last week was the official start, and the total from just Sunday alone was $57,000 came in on Sunday. And so this is just about, just, just about 20%, just under 20% of the, the pledged amount to date. And like I said, we have a long way to go, but it's really encouraging to see uh, you guys respond to what the Lord is doing here. David, Pastor David and I had a meeting with our architect this week and the builders, and we were talking about, hey, adjusting the plan if we need to, but there's still a very promising way forward. And I want to invite each and every one of you to continue to pray with us because what we would love to do is we would love to take the bank in July or August, whenever we take possession, we would love to take them the full purchase amount of this building, which is $500,000. We would love to just be done with it, okay? And that's a lofty goal, right? But if that's God's plan for us, it'll happen. So I want you to add that item to your daily prayer list so that we can see the mighty hand of God at work. Now, if that's not supposed to happen, it won't happen. We'll roll with it. But that is our prayer. And the Lord says, ask, right? And keep asking, and keep asking, and I'm, I'm just going to be obedient to that, as I have already. And so I just want to thank you all for your support. And so if you haven't pledged yet, and some of you have told us what you're going to pledge, but to us it doesn't count unless you fill out a pledge card. So on our More Than We Can Imagine table with the TV right here and the booklets, there's a pledge card. Please fill that out. You can drop that in the offering, but we need to have your official pledges as soon as possible so that we can make our projections and our plans. Amen? Well, let me uh, begin the message today. If you've been tracking with us for the last several weeks, you know that we're in a series that I'm simply calling More Than We Can Imagine. In fact, that's kind of the name of our uh, building campaign, and that's kind of the, the initiative that we've engaged this year. We are seeking God for the, what we call the more of the Lord. Uh, when we look in Scripture, we find that God can and will do more than we can imagine. We've used this sort of as our Scripture for this year Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, that says, Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, that's important, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. And I've really fallen in love with this passage. Uh, I've really clung to this as we've tried to realize these dreams that the Lord has set before us, particularly as it relates to this uh, building. And one of the things that we've been saying throughout the course of this series, and it rang true to many of us, is that in discovering the more of the Lord and pursuing it, generally we find that God is much bigger, better, more merciful, more kind, more of all those wonderful attributes. He's, he's, he's more than we had ever imagined that he was. And in discovering that, we also might find that our need for him is far greater than we had originally thought. This is true because our instinct, as we've said week after week, is to, to, is to minimize God, to shrink him down to a portable size that we can stick into our pockets, and our instinct to also to enlarge ourselves. But as we approach the reality of who God really is, it causes us to make much of God, to enlarge him. And something amazing happens when we begin to do that. As we see God for who he really is, all of a sudden, we begin to see ourselves for who we really are. And that can be frightening depending on where you are, right? What stage of life you're in. And another interesting thing that happens is we see God for who he is. And as we see ourselves for who we really are, something else amazing happens and that we begin to see others. We begin to see others, the world around us, the way God intended for us 
to see them. And so this is a really big year uh, for us, and I really believe that God is driving us, not just individually, but he's driving us corporately into a place where we see him for who he really is, we approach him with an expectation to receive the more of the Lord. And this isn't just, let's stand under an open heaven with buckets and just ask God for more and more stuff. But the reality of this passage that we're clinging to, the reality of our expectations, have us believing that the more of the Lord, what God is going to do more than we can imagine, is going to come through us. He's going to do it through us which basically means this more than imagine, we, we imagine it's going to require more from us than we imagine. It's going to, it's going to require a, a bigger investment than we had bargained for, perhaps budgeted for, but it's worth it because we're going to get to experience what God has for us. And I began this series a couple of weeks ago talking about the fact that we can partner or participate with God and his big plan. And some of you, that's news to you. We continued this series by talking about the fact that we had to make a move, right? We looked at the story of Abraham uh, in Genesis, and Abraham had to move from his comfortable place, move from familiar setting. He had to do some things in order to experience the more of the Lord. And even in that motion, even in doing some things, he still had to be patient and wait for that slow unfolding of God's plan and purpose in his life. And last week, I asked you, kind of an awkward question. I asked, why are you here, right? As we looked at the story of the resurrection and we framed for us this whole idea that in order to engage a real resurrected Jesus, we have to come to him with great expectations, knowing that a risen savior does risen savior things, right? And so we have to come with great expectation. But I think it's important for us to consider what are the evangelistic implications of this more of the Lord that we speak of? What are the evangelistic implications of this exceedingly, abundantly, more than we can ask or think? What are the evangelistic implications? What are the implications with regard to a lost and hurting world who will die and perish if they are not, you know, if they are not interrupted by the gospel? I've said this before this morning because it's very, very possible to go through all of our church life and expect everything from God. We can expect buildings, we can expect cars, and we can expect promotions. But we don't have real expectation for God to save the scoundrels of the world. I'll say that again. We can have expectation for all sorts of material things, all sorts of spiritual healings in the people of faith, particularly in the vineyard, like we know God, the supernatural is real. But we can have zero confidence in the gospel And the outworking of that to save the lost around us. And I'm here to tell you, if the more of the Lord doesn't have any implications with regard to evangelism and saving the lost, then it is useless. And since it's not useless, it might be the case that we've simply misunderstood it. It might also be the case that we are misapplying it or applying it too narrowly And if there's anything that we should be focusing on with with specific regard to the power of God, like the power of God is primarily to save the lost. And so if this more of the Lord that we seek does not move us to greater faith in the gospel to save those who are far from God, then what are we doing? What are we doing? 
And I'm not talking about faith to save that coworker who is just kind of a Christian already just without Christ. They do all Christians that are really, it's really low-hanging fruit. Let me just share the gospel just so she goes to church now. That's like really low-hanging fruit. I'm talking about faith in the gospel that will save the sex trafficker. Faith in the, the gospel that will save the kid that's about to go shoot up his school tomorrow. Uh, faith in the gospel that can turn the heart of this sincere atheist like, I think we might need that kind of faith. All to say that if the more of the Lord does not move us to a deeper measure of faith in the gospel to save the lost, we need a new faith. And so I've just titled this message this morning, Go Get Him. Go Get Him. Because I believe that's what God has called us to do. He set before us the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world. And this is the resurrected Christ speaking, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them teaching these disciples. We've been given a commission. We got to go get them. Now, I think that's worth saying. It needs to be said because we live in a Christian culture. We could call it that in some respects where people like know about church and we have an expectation or reasonable expectation to some degree uh, that when people are ready for church, they just may probably pass 30, 40 churches on their way to work. They might just pop into one and, you know, Boom, God saves them, right? But the reality of our present day and age is that more often than not, people will need to be like, we need to go get them. We need to invite them. We need like on-record evangelistic encounters with people in order for them to experience the reality of what God has for them. And so in the, in the spirit of that re- reality, I want to uh, just deal with this subject today, go get them. I'm going to look at a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 9. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles? Acts chapter 9. Uh, there are Bibles, by the way, on the edges of your row. Feel free to use those Bibles. You can also engage with the text through your phone, through your apps, on your tablets or whatever. We'll also be projecting them on the screen. Acts chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 1. And while you get that, let me pray. Lord, we thank you that for many of us it's true that you came and got us. When we were a mess, when we were full of ourselves, when we were in our sin and rebellion, you came and got you. You sent somebody to come and get us. And so, Father, may we be those instruments that you would use to go and get others. Father, we confessed to you this morning that we, you know, perhaps have taken evangelism a little lightly. We put perhaps a little too much onus on the person to come to us rather than us going to them. And Father, would you stir our hearts this morning to experience the more of the Lord in an evangelistic realm in deeper ways than we've experienced today. Father, I pray that you would remove any distractions, that our hearts and our minds, spirits would be open to hear, receive, and respond to you today. Father, as always, I pray that you would put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way so that your truth, your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 9. Some of you recognize this chapter and verse. And basically this uh, passage details the conversion of uh, the Apostle Paul. And some of you are familiar with Apostle Paul, very influential biblical character. He was uh, known for writing much of the New Testament. 
Paul was an apostle and an evangelistic guy who went all over the world spreading the gospel, establishing churches. He is one of the heroes of the Christian faith. But some of you may not know this, but Saul, like you and like me, uh, before he came to Christ, he had a past. Yeah, you look good now. You're in church now, but all of us have a past, and some of us have a recent past, like last week, right? And so Saul has a past, and so this passage acquaints us with the, you know, the, the, the details surrounding his conversion, and this is a really important text for us because, you know, when you read Saul's story, uh, all of a sudden your faith rises for the scoundrels in our life, Right? And maybe you're here today and you might consider yourself to be a scoundrel, somebody who is far from God, somebody who's beyond God's reach. Well, just strap yourself in today because we'll have a little fun. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. This is the story of Saul's conversion. Begins this way. Meanwhile, Saul, that's the apostle Paul before his name was changed. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way or any believers, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could, not, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people. In Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias has a problem with this plan. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house uh, and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to, excuse me, so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, this passage is a really, really big deal. Scripture in general, by the way, is a really big deal. But this passage in particular is a really big deal because I believe that we all have uh, souls in our life, right? We all have souls in our life, and and, and your soul could represent that person who you have, you know, maybe you wouldn't say this because good Christians don't say this, but maybe you might feel in, in the deepest corners of your heart that that person, they're just lost. Uh, they're just gone. 
Don't even waste any energy. Don't waste any effort. Be nice to them. But if I got, you know, if I got some church invites, I'm not going to waste one. <laughs> I'm not going to waste one on them, right? I mean, you, you, would, never, you would never say that, right? But if, if I forced you to give, just give me a list of three, the top three Saul's, like some of you would, some of you would be done in seconds, right? Because we all have those people go, because of what they're doing, because of their disposition, because of their history, their reputation, it's just highly unlikely that the Lord can save them and probably doesn't even want them. And Saul would be that person. He would be that person who was just so violently opposed the growth of the Christian church. He was so against the person and work of Christ that he persecuted Christians, killed them, imprisoned them. Like every Christian knew, stay away from Saul because he was a persecutor of the brethren. And his goal was to stamp it out, mainly because he thought that Jesus was a fake. He thought that he was a phony. And it's easy to misunderstand Saul and to, and to just sort of throw him sort of in the alleyway, but you have to understand that Saul did this with, with a clear conscience. He thought he was doing the Lord's work. Many of us forget, and some of you have never heard, that many people had come before Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. And guys like Saul would put them to the test. And Saul, looking at the fact that Jesus had been killed and buried, did not believe the resurrection accounts, figured that they had taken care of Jesus once and for all, and they were confused as to why this dead guy still had followers. And why these followers were still trying to, you know, plant churches and preach the gospel about a dead guy. Saul said, we got to put an end to this. This is blasphemy. Saul was working, as he thought, on behalf of God to do away with people who were making false claims, right? Nonetheless, he was murderous, violent in his approach, and he had the letter of the law on his side. Saul was that guy. But God had other plans for Saul. And I think we need to wrestle with this text. I think we need to hold it up to our face like a mirror so that we might see how we might be sort of Ananias in this story. And we might more readily be able to identify the Saul's in our life and begin to see those people in those situations the way God would see them. And so in light of that, I want to highlight three things that I think are really, really important, particularly as we're charged to go get them, particularly as we're charged to really wrestle with what does the more of the Lord look like evangelistically for the South Suburban Vineyard Church? What does this exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or think look like with regard to evangelism through us? Three important things in this text. And the first thing is that God is up to something on both sides of the evangelism table. God is up to something on both sides of the evangelism table, of the evangelism exchange. And so I think this is really important because sometimes we see ourselves as the evangelist, as we should. And sometimes we feel like, like if, if I don't say it right, if I don't present the gospel right, if I'm awkward in any way, 
if I'm uncool in any way, I can really mess this up. Like so much of this is on me because like God gave me this charge to be evangelistic, to share the gospel. And I just, if I don't do it perfectly, like it'll all be a waste. If there's anything that this particular passage teaches us is that God is at work on both sides of this thing. The Spirit of God was working with Ananias, the evangelist, and the Spirit of God was working on Saul's end as well. I say that again. The Spirit of God was working with Ananias, the evangelist, but he was also working on Saul's end. Let's examine what the Spirit of God was doing with Saul. Verse 3, as Saul neared Damascus to do his business, uh, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul were speechless because, like, Saul's now, like, knocked off of his horse or whatever he was riding. He's blind now. The Spirit of God, Jesus himself, is dealing with the subject of evangelism. Dealing with Saul. He's dealing with them in a way that is, like, undeniable. It's undeniable. And this is helpful for me because I sometimes feel like I got to get it right. I got to make this happen. And what you and I need to realize is that the Spirit of God is at work on those that he's calling. Scripture even says that no man can even come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him or her, which basically means I can give my best preach. I can give my best pitch. For the gospel. But if the Spirit of God isn't already working on a person, I don't want to say I'm wasting my time, but like there's another side to this, right? Jesus himself said, let me go down here and take care of this brother because he's acting a fool. Knocks him down because every knee will bow. And has some words with this brother. And basically, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, so what are, you, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? Saul says, uh, who are you, Lord? <laughs> he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're messing with. Who do you think I am? And so this encounter is powerful because somebody is driven and as zealous and as ignorant, as we would say, as Paul is, needs like an, a, a force like Jesus to bring him down to size. And so some of us, this is good news for us because you've been, you, you've been, you've been, you've been, you've been kicking yourself. You've got a person in your life. You've got a Saul in your life. Maybe you're, you're married to your Saul. Or maybe your Saul has your last name and they're dependent of yours. Or maybe your Saul is a co-worker or a friend. Maybe your soul is sitting next to you right now. Don't give it away, Dutch. Look, look ahead. Don't give it away. And you feel like it's up to you to bring them to Jesus. You feel like you got to get the words right. You feel like you got to just leave scriptures on the pillow, you know, and, and email them little devotional. You feel like it's all on you. And I just feel like the Lord would just say to some of you, that Jesus knows how to get the attention of those that he's after. When Jesus wants your attention, he can get it. 
And some of you are sitting here today because Jesus came and got your attention. And so this tells us anything. It tells us that Jesus is able, willing, like it's his job to draw the hearts and minds of men and women toward him. But there's another side to this coin, right? The evangelist, us, does work for us to do. Because around the same time that Jesus was dealing with Saul, he was dealing with Ananias on the other end as well. Verse 10 says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, I'm sorry, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand to restore his sight. And some of you, when we really dissect like the more than we can imagine that we're hoping for God for, it's not a new house. It's not a new car. It's like, Lord, would you save my soul? Lord, would you save my husband? Lord, would you save my wife? Would you save my brother? Would you save my kids? They're traveling wrong. And I believe uh, that the Lord would show us in this mirror of Scripture that we are to be his Ananias in the lives of our souls. It's just as easy as the Spirit of God is working on the scoundrel in our life. The Spirit of God is giving us detailed instructions as to how to relate to that person who needs us most. And part of what this means is that you've got to, like, surrender your plan, right? I see this most often in spouses who are saved, but their husband, you know, or wife is not. And you come to me and say, listen, okay, give me some more scriptures. I've run out of scriptures. I've used one each and every day. Like, give me, what, what else can I say? And usually the Spirit of the Lord tells me to tell them, like, it's God's job to save. And then if that person comes to faith, it's not because they saw another scripture written in lipstick on the mirror. It's because the Spirit of God has drawn them. And usually what God will give you is a plan that's usually different from the plan that you would draw up. It usually requires you to be quieter than you want to be sometimes. It usually requires you to be humbler than you want to be sometimes. It usually requires you to put yourself out more than you would want to put yourself out or maybe to outsiders look foolish or or vulnerable or weak. And part of what it means to surrender to God's working on the Ananias side is to surrender our plan for that person and adopt God's. Some of you who have your spouses sitting here or your children in church now or your friends who are realize that God began to do the, uh, the fastest work when you like got on his, play, you know, his, his schedule and off of yours. And I expect that this would be incredibly freeing, maybe hard to hear, but incredibly freeing from, for somebody who feels like it's got to be up to them, that you've got to figure something out loud. God loves that person more than you love them. God has a heart and a plan for that person. And I'd imagine that if we would surrender our will to God's, we might find that he's working on both ends. He's working on Saul. He's also working on us. 
Second part of this is that God wants us to change how we view others. God wants us to change how we view others. I think this is especially true as it relates to the people who who might be making life difficult for us. This is especially true for the souls in our life. Because for some of us, our souls are people who we just hope stay way over there, like don't bother us. But like I said just a few moments ago, sometimes your soul, like you live in close quarters or you work in close quarters with your soul, and sometimes you don't see them as a person made in God's image of much worth and value. You see them as a person who is, you know, making your life a living hell. And my suspicion is we don't pray for people who are making our life a living hell, other than, like, God, do something with them. You know, cut the brake lines, do something. (laughs) We don't pray that the kingdom will come in their life. We don't come, I pray that they would experience the richness, the more of the Lord. I mean, only the most saintly of us might pray those prayers, but most of us, we probably don't, you know, pray for them at all. The reality is some, some people will come to faith and some won't, right? Right? But the truth is, like, we don't know who those people are. We don't know whether they'll come to faith or not. And so I think that what Scripture would challenge us to do is to treat every person, even the scoundrel, especially the scoundrel, as if somehow they are an object of God's desire. I say that again. Since we don't know who will come to faith and who won't, then I feel like God is calling us to, 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 to treat every single person, especially ourselves, especially the scoundrels, as somebody who is an object of God's desire. And that is to say that we see everybody as a person of purpose and destiny. Maybe they haven't discovered it yet. <laughs> Maybe they have engaged God in a, in a real enough way where they have connected with that. But, uh, but, but this is like a vision problem that many of us has. This is an issue with how we see people. There's people we like, the people that we're rooting for, the people that don't make our lives difficult. We like, God, just, just wreck them. God, just enlarge them. God, reveal your plan and purpose to them. And then there are the other folks who are just like, Lord, just God, keep them away from me. But Saul is being schooled by Jesus, and so is Ananias, because Saul is, uh, Ananias is challenged in this passage. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports. So the Lord says, hey, go and deal with Saul. He's waiting for you. Go take care of it. Ananias says this, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him, Saul, how much he must suffer for my name. Now, this is interesting because Ananias wasn't confused about who he was talking to. Like, he knew he was talking to the Lord. He knew this was like an encounter he was having with the Lord. And yet, he 
pushes back when the Lord sends him to Ananias. Lord gives him his marching orders, and he says, that's cool and everything, but maybe they didn't tell you, but Saul of Tarsus is a bad guy. And maybe they left out the details about what he's doing to your people, like, which I'm a part of that group too, so I'm at risk, and you're sending me to him. Maybe, Lord, maybe you didn't get the memo about that. He says he's got plans, papers, even now, that gives him a legal right to do harm to us. Like, are you sure it's Saul of Tarsus? Maybe like you got the city wrong. The Lord says this. He says, go. And I imagine, like he says it in that same tone, like when you tell your kids something and they try to tell you, you know, explain, go. And in just a few sentences, he, he reframes how Ananias should see Saul. He says, this man, Saul, the guy you don't like, this bad guy, this scoundrel, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. And many of us are acquainted with Saul's story, comes to faith, starts preaching the gospel shortly after, and he's a firebrand for the kingdom. Churches start all over the world. The Gentile church grows like crazy, and we are byproducts of the spread of the gospel beyond the Jewish family, right? And so if there's no Saul, the gospel suffers, right? And so what the Lord is saying to Ananias is, Ananias, I know, I know, I know you have a picture of this brother, but I need you to see him the way I see him. I know Saul has a past, and at this moment, it's like a recent past. We're three days into this thing. But I was arrested by this, this particular passage. It, it ran me through spiritually. Because so often, I am just so, so quick to define people by their worst moments. And some people give you a lot of stuff to define them by. But I am just so quick to define people by their worst moments. It's such a part of human nature. And that's how I remember you, that evil thing you did. It's true when I see preachers who have had affairs and they've been away for about five, ten years and then they come back on the scene to preach and I'm just like, isn't that the guy that had the affair? Isn't that the guy that blew up his family and blew up his church? Isn't that so? And some of you are dealing with that in your very own life. God's changed you. He's rearranged you. He's put you on a positive trajectory and all people can bring up is who you used to be and what you used to do. I'm guilty of it myself. And as God sometimes has to just feed me, feed me the reality of how he sees that person. Made in my image, made in my likeness, of much worth and value, go to them. And the most interesting thing about this is like, you know, like, Ananias, because the turnaround on this is so quick, he had, no, he had no way of knowing what God was doing in Saul's heart. This is why we can't play God. He had no idea that Jesus himself knocked Saul off of his 
horse and, and is dealing with him and has him sequestered and, and, and crippled, so to speak, in blindness. Just like there's nothing, he, Saul's locked away with nothing but his thoughts. Nothing but an opportunity to reflect on how he's erred and the reality of the risen Savior, which he was sure was dead. Like he's got nothing but time. This is like a three-day intensive where it's just nobody but Jesus and Saul. Like God's got a plan for Saul. Like he needs him ready. He needs him ready to go. And so he's just like in this, in this having this intensive moments. And these, these are moments that, that Ananias, apart from what God tells him, knows nothing about. And I told you I was arrested by this because I know nothing oftentimes of what the Spirit is doing in the hearts of those people that I'm called to. And so I have been challenged to change the way I see people and to deny the, the, the natural urge and instinct to define people by their worst moments or by the worst possible narrative about them, or to define them worse, but by the opinions of somebody else, second or third hand opinions about somebody else. And so, Lord, will you give me your eyes so that I can see this person how you see them? So I can see them how you see them. And just to add to this, I feel like this, this, this has helped when we consider, you know, who we used to be. And I can't say this enough, but I, listen, some people, when they start talking to me about somebody else, I want to say, you know, I'm your pastor. I know your story. <laughs> if there's anybody who should be compassionate, if there's anybody who, 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 who knows that the leaf can be turned and that the power of God, the gospel is, 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 is real, like it should be you. You used to sleep with anybody who would have you. You used to gamble your check away before you even got home. You neglect your kids and everything else. And now that you've been saved for two weeks, you don't have a kind word to say about anybody who's struggling and who's in process. And so the challenge is, God, help me see these people the way you see them. Even the person who's making my life the most difficult, Father, may I see them the way you see them so that I might have ears to hear from heaven what my role might be in bringing them into saving faith. And maybe you don't have a role. But my goal is to be open to go to anybody the Lord might send me to. Third and final thing. And I think that God wants us to be his EMTs. Right? We need to understand that God is working on both sides. He's working on Saul and Ananias. God wants to change the way we view others. But this third one is really important because this is like where the risk is involved, right? And I think that Ananias might have been pushing back enough because he he, he sensed that the Lord was causing him to take a risk. Like the Lord said, go to Saul. Go, go to him. No, go to where he is. And Saul's so like, that puts me, uh, Ananias, that puts me at risk. 
This is dangerous, but like the Lord is telling us, like we have to go, right? And as such, I feel like we need to understand that God wants us to be his EMTs, emergency medical technicians, or like the ambulance drivers, right? Paramedics. And I think that's important because we often say of our church that we're supposed to be a hospital, that we are to be a hospital, a place where sick people come and get well. The worst thing we could possibly be is a hospital that only has doctors. (laughs) What a creepy place. A hospital ought to have doctors and sick people, right? And so we frame ourselves often as a hospital, a place where the sick should come. And we shouldn't be surprised if we have to rub shoulders with somebody who's broken or somebody who's in process or somebody who's a scoundrel of the highest order because after a while, I mean, after all, like, right, we, took, we, we helped you. We nursed you to health or we're nursing you to health. We had to be a hospital, right? But like the hospital, like, is a place where people come. Like, they got to come here. And, and some, of us, some of us were broken, but like we were broken enough, we could drive ourselves to the ER, you know, check ourselves in and go read a magazine until they got to us. But, but, but some of you had to, you know, we had to go get you. We had to fire up uh, the ambulance, like, and go get you and bring you to the hospital. And so I feel like with this passage and others like it, and some of your testimonies bear this out, is that like you were a person like that somebody came, kicked down a door to like get you. They pressed through some obstacles and pressed through some risk and ignored some advice in order to come and get you. And it's amazing how short our memories can be. Isn't it? It's amazing how short our memories can be. Like, they know where we are. When they're ready, they'll come. And that's true in some regard. But I just feel like the Lord, oftentimes, like the Lord sends us out to go get people. The Lord tells Ananias to go. He says, he's already ready for you. I gave him a vision of somebody by your name to come and lay hands on him. He's like, he's already waiting for you. Go to him. And the implications of us being EMTs are numerous. The most important ones is like like proximity, right? Like we got to be close. This isn't WebMD where you go, okay, where does it hurt? Okay, put some ice on that, right? Move your arm around like we're giving somebody instructions of how to help themselves. This isn't like that. This is like, no, you, you go to where they, where they are. You go, you get being close proximity with them. You go on their turf, place that's unfamiliar to you, surroundings that are unfamiliar to you, like you're on their turf. And this is really, really important for, I think, Christians who grew up like in my generation, because like if you grew up in our church context, like you, you didn't go into bars or you didn't go to place where sinners hung out. And we were just joking this morning that like much of the Christian church in our generation wasn't 
didn't seem to have a real evangelistic focus. It seemed to be more geared toward people who were already connected. And if somebody wanted to come in off the street, they had to kind of figure it out. And so we didn't have this like, you know, our hearts and, and evangelistic opportunities weren't calibrated to like go to people. We were even coached that we weren't supposed to have any un, uh, un, non-Christian friends. I'm like, how do, what are we going to meet these people at? How are we going to be a light? But there's something about being on, going on somebody else's turf. There's something about, you know, us getting uncomfortable and going to where they are that brings the power of the gospel and brings salvation and makes the gospel more real. And, and, and you just don't get that until you get it, Right? And he goes to where Saul is. And verse 17 tells us what happens. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placed his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says, Immediately something like scale fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, the striking thing about this, we we serve a miracle-working God. As I often point out, he spoke to nothing in the very beginning, created everything that we see. God could have very easily made short work of this task. He could have handled all of this on the road to Damascus. Boom, knock you down, boom, blind, wait 10 seconds, you got it? Okay, good, go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Go do your thing, right? But no, there was a slower unfolding of this because God's plan, like, involves us. And if, if, if you miss everything else from this whole series, this whole more than we can imagine, don't miss the Christ working within us. Christ working through us. Christ getting the biggest work done, the biggest, his biggest initiatives, like he slows down the pace so that we can participate. He, he slows down the bus so that we can get on and so that we could be a part of this. He could have done all of this in an instant, but no, he wanted to include Ananias. Because the slow kingdom coming, the slow unfolding of the kingdom God's like doing something in Saul's heart and he's doing something in Ananias' heart. We needn't think that if we are participating in evangelism that we're just do-gooders, that we're just like saviors to show up. We need to examine like what God is doing in us. He's filing off our heart edges. He's lowering our lofty opinions of ourselves. He's causing us to get our hands dirty and to go and take risks and to be uncomfortable. All the while, we are surprised, delighted. We're in awe again at how intricate God's plan is. Imagine after all this happened, Ann and I sit down, have a cup of tea or whatever they drink with Saul, and here's like what happens on Saul in, and here's what the Lord was talking to him, and he goes, my, my God is awesome. I knew nothing of all these details, and what happens when we have an opportunity, and I love this, you know, many of the people who come to faith in our church or who, who join our church, we have a period of time where we say, hey, how'd you come to this church? Now, tell us your story. And when we hear the story 
And even our baptism candidate, when we hear the stories, we, we hear details that we never heard before, and we see all the ways that God had gone back 10, 15 years and began a process that would terminate in the person being in front of us right now. And we see 17, 18, 19 different people, three or four different states, all of these different pieces that God used to get you where you are right now, and it's a miracle to us. And so, yes, Saul came to faith, and, and yes, he began to go out and do great works, but Ananias is not the same after this encounter. How can he be? All to say is when we remove ourselves from the evangelistic picture, for the evangelistic activities of the kingdom, particularly in this particular missional outpost, we are robbing God of opportunities to show us, like, this is what he's really good at. Robbing God of opportunity to use us and to inspire more confidence and faith in the gospel. I don't know about you, but when I go long stretches without seeing somebody come to faith or without participating, get my hands dirty, I just get kind of numb to it. I get kind of dull to it. There's plenty of activity around here to keep me busy. But when we go through that beginnings class and we've had baptism candidates and I hear somebody's story and even in Alpha this week as we got an opportunity to share how we came to faith and the, you know, what the Lord was doing, I go, man, this stuff works. And not only does it work, the Lord wants to use me and he wants to use you. But the reality of all this is this is not going to happen as we sit comfortably in these purple chairs. Much of this will happen, much of it will be realized as we get in our ambulances and we go. And worship team, you can come up as I close. As we get in our ambulance and we go as we allow God to remind us that all people, including the people who are just out there, are made in his image, made in his likeness. He's got a plan and a purpose for them oftentimes that you know nothing of. And often it's the case that God, I mean, God was generous to Ananias. He gave him some details. He said, listen, he, you know, we, oftentimes we get no such details. Oftentimes what we hear is a gentle go. Right? Go. And so my question to you as I close is, who are the souls in your life? Like, who are, those, who are those people that, like, you have just sort of written off, right? Again, maybe they're not really connected to you that much. Maybe you don't have to have them. Or maybe they're in close quarters with you, but who, who are they? How might God be challenging you to see them differently? How might you relate to them differently if you saw them as a person of purpose? They just happen to haven't, you know, figured that out yet. A person who is one of the objects of God's desire. How would you speak to them differently? How would you pray for them differently? Get this. How would you speak about them differently? You know, I think that the, 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 the key to the next leg of, of growth, even with this building and all that stuff, I think the Lord would just say, hey, we're, built, we're, we're, we're remodeling the hospital Right? 
But if we, if we think for, for a second that this new building with its new remodel, new look, is going to be the magic bullet for us, we're kidding ourselves. And what we ought to be investing in is, is a few more ambulances to, like, go get people. And that's part, of the, that's part of the plan. That's part of the strategy as we engage uh, this next level for us. And so my prayer is that you would sit with that and let that marinate as we worship and that the Spirit of God would do what only he can do. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you came and got us. And we see now, Lord, that you used others to, like, come and get us. That salvation came, like, you know, on the back of a willing servant who just went where you told him to go and said what you told him to say. And so, Father, I pray that we would begin to pay that forward, that we would begin to take seriously this charge, this commission to go into all the world, comfortable and uncomfortable places, safe and risky places, to bring the lost to you. Father, would you change our outlook? Would you break our hearts for, for those who are far from you? And Father, may we never forget who we were before you found us. Come Holy Spirit. Do your work in us. Make us your ENTs. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.